This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. Before we start the show this week, I have to remind you that we still have our survey going on for the next couple of weeks. You can win a $10 Comixology gift card if you go to ircbpodcast.com slash survey. Fill out the survey. Let us know what you think of the show. If you have any other comments, please feel free to email us at ircb at destroythesibe.org. And now on to the show. With me this week are two people who are absolutely, completely not robots. Paul Jaisley. Hello. And Nick White. Uh, syntax error. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both for Beep Boop joining me this week. Um, none of us are robots, we assure you. Let me ask you the question I ask every week. <laughs> How are you doing? How are comic books? Let's start with Nick. Things are good. I've been busy. Um... Yesterday, I, I got a call from a neighbor who was like, oh, shit, um, it's my anniversary, and I need someone to watch the kids. So, um, of course, I went over and, and, and did what most babysitting is for me, which is uh, eating pizza, uh, step one, uh, mm-hmm. playing video games, uh, step two. Uh, so we played Mario Party. And uh, it was great, except I was losing. And I will be honest with the listeners. Um, I was trying to win. You know, I don't hold back. I was trying to sure. beat these kids. Um, yeah. And because, uh, like, you know, when, when, when we play, like, Old Maid or things like that, they all those all of a sudden all these house rules start, start appearing out of nowhere and I lose. So I was trying mm-hmm. to win this, only to find out two hours later that they gave me one of the Wiimotes without Motion Plus. So then I found out why Nick was losing all of the motion games. So um, (laughs) the kids handicapped me right before we started the whole thing. And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was it was it was great experience. So um, you're not upset about that at all. It doesn't sound like it. (laughs) No, I'm not upset to the point where I would share it with lots of listeners. But uh, I mean, it's a valuable life lesson. If you find yourself babysitting and they want to play Mario Party, check your Wiimote to see if it's Wii Motion Plus. Otherwise, you might actually end up letting the kids win. Um, I see. I yeah, see. So, okay. so there are lessons to be learned. Um, yeah. So that's 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 what uh, that's what I've been doing uh, in terms of what I've been reading. Um, uh, I think we all want a, a perfect body, and we also want a perfect soul. So naturally, I read The Creep um, by John Arcudi. <laughs> uh, deep cuts. Yeah. <laughs> Not that deep cuts. Um, and Jonathan Case, who drew. Uh, the Green River Killer, which I think we're going to be talking about later. Uh, oh, and yeah. it's, a, it's an interesting mystery. I feel like there's such a temptation when you do mystery to do sort of a, a modern gritty thing a la Law and Order or to do some sort of, you know, crime, uh, 1930s crime noir, you know, you know, dark streets and, you know, dames and madams and all that. And and so the fact that this was a murder mystery set in sort of just the late 80s, early 90s, Minnesota Americana, like the setting alone, I was like, hmm, this is different. I'm, I'm, I'm on board. And it's, it's an interesting sort of thing because it involves two teenage boys who commit suicide within a few months of each other. Um, and they were friends. And of course, the police are like, "Yep, both of them killed each killed themselves. They didn't kill each other. That that's not suicide at that point. Um, both of them killed themselves. There's nothing more to look into." And one of the mothers calls an old friend who um, is now a PI. He used to be like an insurance claims investigator, um, and he comes out and starts looking into the case. And it's sort of interesting because uh, they call him the creep uh, because he had this rare 
genetic disorder that tends to manifest in one's 30s or 40s and it sort of distorts facial features into like an exaggerated state. Uh, I forget the name of it, uh, but it creates this very distinctive looking protagonist, which I'm sure, uh, I think, I think Mike, you've at least seen the cover, so you know um, oh, yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah, and, yeah I looked at a little bit of the interiors too. It's pretty yeah. wild stuff. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's really cool, and it kind of drifts into this deep, like, Minnesota woods, backwoods mystery uh, tale and you, I just I just read all five six, five or six issues back to back to back to back to back. Uh, very good, very interesting, complete standalone book. So I wouldn't be shocked if a lot of people have just simply never heard of it. And John Arcudi is one of the best writers out there that has just been slogging away for years, and just people kind of forget about just because he never leaves Dark Horse, or or alternatively, I don't think they let him leave Dark Horse. So <laughs> John Arcudi, you'll you'll find that exit one day, I swear. Mm-hmm. Um, I read Dark Days the Casting. Uh, Paul, have you read this yet? Have you read I, this or what's the other one? The Forge. The Forge. Yes, I, I read them both and I, I enjoyed them. They are wonderfully dumb superhero comics in the yes. best way. <laughs> yes, the perfect kind okay. of dumb comic. I really liked The Forge for that very reason. I thought the casting, for some reason, which again, same same team, so mm-hmm. like. What do you expect? I found the forge to be so wordy, like so talkative. And there's like my eyes just glaze over after about seven or eight pages where it's just pure paragraphs, paragraphs, yeah. paragraphs, paragraphs. And I felt like that's what this book did to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we we learned a few things like Duke has. I, I don't even fully understand what what Duke can do, uh, mm-hmm. honestly. Uh, did you did you understand that part? I mean, he's spoilers like, for the dark days. Is he casting? like an honorary <laughs> yeah. Green Lantern Corps member? Like, what's the deal? Uh, no, that's not that's not what I interpret. No, you as. idiot. Yeah, okay, yeah. Paul, I got it. Yeah. Thanks. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. I, I'm not entirely sure. It's almost like this. This. Um, ability to kind of uh, read information in a weird way. He's like he he could pull up the blu- blueprints for this machine in the Batcave from like memory. I thought I it was correctly. sort of insinuating something about the ability to either amplify or negate powers, and that's why his name uh, is Signal. Okay. Right, right, right. That's I why see. they call him Signal. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> um, Anyway, but we learned that we learned that uh, Batman can get a long speech about this mythical, dangerous weapon, and which is then given to him by Wonder Woman, and then he promptly goes and pawns it off. Uh, <laughs> pages later, <laughs> don't let this get into the wrong hands. Two pages later, hey, I'll trade. Hey, hey, ex-wife, I'll trade you <laughs> this magical sword <laughs> for that weird dagger with a lightning bolt on it. That looks sweet. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what? Shazam, man. You know what? If there's anything I can say about the Forge and the casting, it's bringing in weird, dumb characters that I love. Mr. Miracle, Mr. <laughs> Terrific, Shazam. Just well, bring them all back. That's fine. Yeah, and even this issue, I mean, I, I love it. I say it's dumb, but I love it because it's like so DC nerdy continuity stuff that I live for. And um, yeah. in that in that scene where Batman shows up and runs into Talia Al Ghul, you have Double X, who's like one of those like most minor characters in Jack Kirby's Fourth World, show up. 
And I'm like, oh, that's a double X. And he like never gets mentioned again. I think he might have, I like, noticed him from OMAC and I was like, yeah. I know this guy is from something. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So it's super um, fun. I mean, but, uh, it's, it's dumb fun and I love it. Yeah. It really has somewhat of a Jeff Johns, big bombastic, everybody's getting roped in feel. But it's got a Jeff Johns feel with a Scott Snyder prose, which is kind of in some ways why I feel it's a little discordant. Um, But still, it's a lot of fun. It's a big book. It's a big price. But um, I I, I still think it's worthwhile. Of Mm -hmm. course, the jury will be out on just how valuable it is for for metal until metal rolls out. Right. Um, I read Black Hammer 9. Yes, I'm a little bit behind. Uh, not trying to rhyme, uh, at least not this time. Um, so we have Matt Kim. Thanks for working. the thanks. This has been the I Read Comic Books podcast. Thank you very much, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> so we got Matt Kent teaming up with his um, penciler from Ether, uh, David Rubin, uh, mm-hmm. and they did an issue about uh, Colonel Weird and Talkie Walkie, uh, which, of course, the character, at least for me, is very much like a Flash Gordon send-up of sorts. Uh, and I totally. thought Ruben was a perfect choice to do this sort of all of these, you know, new and fantastical, strange, colorful worlds and, you know, you know, aliens of all different shapes and sizes. And and and, and I thought I thought Ruben was a fantastic choice. And, and whoever set up that arrangement deserves a cookie. Uh, I enjoyed that a lot. Um, what else? Uh Probably the other thing I want to bring up is that I read Rapture number two. This, of course, is a Valiant miniseries. It's Matt Kint's attempt at injecting sort of a fantasy book into the Valiant universe. Um, I, I, I think it was a wise choice. It allows him to sort of access certain characters that otherwise sort of have to... You have to go through some mental gymnastics in order to naturally bring them into other books, uh, such as Shadow Man and such as Punk Mambo. Um, But this whole venture into the shadow... Good lord, why am I going to get this wrong? Shadow Verse, Shadow Lands, Dead Side. The Dead Side, that's what it's called. Um, This sort of venture into the Dead Side allows for some of that to happen. Um... And I, I appreciate it for that. I also really, really like that um, it's got Kafu on art. Um, Kafu isn't really well known to some people, um, but for those of you who read the Rye tie-in issues to 4000 AD, um, he was the one who took over um, on Rye at that point because, of course, Clayton Crane was busy drawing the actual 4000 AD event book. Yeah. Um, and so there were a lot of people like me, and I think Mike as well, who were sort of very skeptical at seeing Clayton Crane step away from Rye and said, well, hold on, like, let, let me see your replacement's credentials. Let's see what you've got. And I think Kafu, <laughs> did, a, I think Kafu did a really good job. He's a very different artist, oh, a very yeah. different style. But then again, who, who, who does look like Clayton, Clayton Crane art-wise? Like, nobody. Yeah. So that's, that's, yeah. that's what I've been reading. Kafu is a fantastic artist. I will say having him yeah. come on to Rye during the, the 4001 uh, crossover event was was a surprise, but also so totally worth it. Um, I was like, I was glad to still be getting Clayton Crane art, but Kafu's art on Rye was seriously top-notch. I just want to make sure that's said because holy cow, I think I talked about this when it came out, but man, that guy totally, totally talented. Yeah. 
anyways, so. Paul, what's what's up with you? How have you been? How have comic books been? All that. Uh, well, I have been good, uh, and I have been trying to keep up. I feel like I always am falling behind on my weekly books. But so oh, the yeah. past week was just catching up, and uh, I managed to do that. So um, a few of the highlights that I read were uh, Power Man, which is not the Marvel Comics Luke Cage Power Man, but instead a mini-comic by Box Brown that I happened Ooh. to find at a little comic shop when I was in L.A. a couple weeks ago. Um, the titular character Power Man is actually a character named uh, Gary Beesh, who bears more than a passing resemblance to noted real estate mogul and reality TV show star Donald Trump. Um, oh, so oh it's boy. a pretty timely book. Uh, it came out back uh, last March, so long before you know things happened. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> it's a pretty fun character study. I mean, it's Box Brown, so it's got that sort of lighthearted artwork, but it's there's a sort of a sad emotional core to it. I really enjoyed it. Um, I also read Love and Rockets number three by Gilbert and Jaime Hernandez, newly inducted into the Eisner Hall of Fame this past SDCC. Much deserved. Yes, and, uh, yes, yes. Now, who's publishing book, the new run? Um, it's Fantagraphics oh. still. Uh, okay. okay. But, you know, they switched from doing, for like seven or eight years, they were doing like annual collections where every year they'd put out like a 100-page trade of their new stuff. They went back to, it's not quite monthly, it's more quarterly, more or less, series. And what's interesting is they return to that and they return to like a bigger like magazine size format rather than the normal comic size. Yeah. And the story that Jaime is telling in these first three issues is about Maggie and her friend Hopi going back to their old neighborhood, going and seeing a punk show, running into all their old friends. So there's, there's sort of nostalgia going on in the story as well as the actual physical format of the book, which I really thought was interesting. And, you know... It, Something about Jaime Hernandez's art. It's just I, I love getting it on a regular basis again. Every few months it's like a it's like an old friend you're revisiting. There's like one panel in one of his stories where you just have Maggie and Hopi, the two like main characters of his whole thirty-five year long Love and Rocket story, and the panel is just them looking at each other. And there's no background, it's just them, but they're they're posture and the look on their faces, it's like their entire relationship in like one image. And it's just moments like that really make me appreciate the Hernandez's work so much. Mm-hmm. So it's always All this book just sounds like a total snooze fest. I'm just going to lie. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> how, how, do, how do you feel about the new run relative to this grand expansive of work, Paul? Where do you, where do you sort of place it or how do you feel about it? The Hernandez's work, their catalog that they've developed over the past three decades is, I think it stands alone, not just in comics, but in like any type of art art form or pop culture. I mean, it's really impressive the fact that they've been doing this for so long and so consistently. And Gilbert's stuff is weird and I've never quite gotten my finger on it, but I like <laughs> reading it. But Jaime's stuff, I mean, it's a 35 year long soap opera that he's done on his own with pencil and ink and it's it's always amazing to to see it so the new series like i said it's it's this nostalgia trip but it's it's not a pure like hey we're gonna go back to the old neighborhood there's the whole weight of the 35 years that come before are still there with you so okay i don't know it's 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 an achievement that i think is remarkable not just in comics but like i said in all of pop culture so 
I also read Black Bolt number three and four. Like I said, I was catching up on, them, on some stuff. This is, of course, mm-hmm. the Black Bolt series by Saladin Ahmed with art by Christian Ward. This book is awesome. I don't know what else I can say about it. It's a perfect concept. You have a magical space prison that Black Bolt has to break out of with the yes. help of the Absorbing Man, Crusher Creole. It, it was It's great stuff. Uh, issue four is pretty interesting because it actually is kind of like a, almost like a solo issue. It's just Crusher Creole sharing his life story with Black Bolt. So you get to know that Absor- Absorbing Man character a little bit more. It's, it's good stuff. Who, who is Crusher Creole? Uh, he's the Absorbing Man. Okay. <laughs> he's a, yeah, he, he, an old Avengers villain from mm-hmm. uh, way back in the 60s. Okay, sure, sure. I mean, uh, Nick, this is this is one of those Marvel books that I think I'm going to be pushing on you really hard to pick up yeah. on in trade. I think you'll yeah. really enjoy it, given you really don't need to know much about either of these characters going in. True. Um, like, even why Black Bolt is in this prison is still kind of a mystery to everyone reading the book right now. <laughs> so, um, I mean, all you need to really know is he's the king of the Inhumans, but he's in this prison, question mark? And that's yeah. the beginning of the book. I mean, mm-hmm. I've seen the covers for this book. It looks It's one of those books where the covers are so good, you could just... I could just buy the book and never read it and be like, look <laughs> look at this piece of art. And the totally. people are like, there are other pages inside there. There's a story. Who cares? <laughs> just look at this. Look at this. It, it is a very good book. It is a very good yeah. book. And it really... As someone that doesn't read a lot of Marvel, it's one of those books that stands out for the main continuity enough for me to really enjoy and not worry about it uh, crossing right. over at all. So Those are the um, books I need, you know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Moon Knight. <laughs> um, also read Doom Patrol number seven. This was a um, issue with fill in art by Mike Allred. It's weird to say Mike Allred is not fill in artist because he's so, you know, well known outside of that. But yeah, he did the art on this issue and it kind of is a perfect fit because it's kind of like a retro flashback type issue where Ooh. the Doom Patrol meet back up with the chief, Niles Calder, and he makes them put on all their old uniforms that they wore in the 60s comic and have a sort of like madcap fighting a supervillain type adventure. It's really fun, kind of meta, exactly what you want from the Doom Patrol. And then finally, the highlight of my comic book reading week was, of course, KFC Across the Universe number three. Wait, wait, wait. This is out? This is yep. out? It came out during the yes, San Diego yes, Comic-Con. Yes, yes, yep. yes, yes, it, yes. It's, a, it's of course... <laughs> Number three in, a, in the hopefully continuing, never-ending DC... Please, and- God. DC, you can cancel all of your other books. It doesn't matter. Just spare yeah. this one. Please always make a Kentucky Fried Chicken crossover promotional comic once a year. Um, I love this how, stuff. How this I can't book? even explain why. I, I love this book. I love this whole thing. It's Tony Bedard writing it, uh, Tom Daenerik on art, and... I think this was probably my favorite one so far, honestly. Uh, Tony Bedard. Oh, really? Um, well, it's based on the like Green Lantern, and Tony Bedard did a long run on Green Lantern Corps, so I think it's kind of in his wheelhouse. Oh, so, true, true. The, the setup is that the colonel is trying to promote his new chicken zinger sandwiches, so he <laughs> sends one up into outer space on a space shuttle, and he says, well, the biggest way to promote it would be to send out thousands of chicken zinger sandwiches across the universe so he enlists the help of the green lantern corps to send <laughs> out these chicken zinger sandwiches across the known universe and the problem is that when the containers containing the chicken zinger sandwiches are opened they're empty someone stole all the chicken zinger sandwiches 
So <laughs> the kernel. I thought the gets, bigger problem is now there's just a massive amount of like space junk, you know, just yeah, they, out yeah, there yeah. drifting, you know. <laughs> they conveniently overlook that, but then um, <laughs> the kernel gets basically deputized into the Green Lantern Corps, and him and Hell Jordan have to go find out who stole the chicken zinger sandwiches. Awesome! Um, it's it's perfect. I, I don't know why. <laughs> I, I can't remember the last time I've ever eaten KFC. I don't eat meat. Uh, but something about these promotional comics just touch something in me that I really enjoy. They're just dumb, fun, and they're free. What's not to like? So That's amazing. <laughs> I'm what still about waiting you, on that KFC. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> For me, oh boy. Uh, well, I, I did read a lot. Like I actually have been sitting down and trying to get through my literal bookshelf of backlog books that I have that don't include my floppies that are sitting on my desk right now um, and doesn't include my humongous list of digital books that I have. But I've been telling myself i got to get through stuff. So I did go and tackle a bunch of stuff. But here are my highlights, I guess. I read all of Mercury Heat, number 1 through 12, because I feel like I owe it to Tia to actually read that book despite it being canceled or over or whatever it was this is a book by kieran gillen and omar francia and holy cow this is like balls to the wall police procedural gonna kick you in the throat and make your head explode kind of comic like it's the perfect mashup of a really cool police drama uh, in space that also happens to have a ton of violence in it um so it fits right into the avatar wheelhouse in that regard um, but the story is pretty cool. Like, it, it, there's a very, really, very rich universe that it, that the story exists in. We follow a woman um, whose name I can't remember, um, but she wants to be a beat cop, or she wants to be a, a police. As she keeps calling herself, "I want to be a police," um, which reminds me a lot of <laughs> The Wire. Um, it's it's really great in that regard. It feels just like like a police like show on showtime or hbo um she wants to be a police but it turns out she's got this weird personality type because in this super futuristic world everyone's personality gets judged and you get a certain number and she's a 57 b and the b is important and i don't know why because the story ended but (laughs) nonetheless um she becomes a police officer on the planet mercury where humans are basically mining all the the energy and all these different minerals and things from this planet and sending it back to earth and keeping the people alive on mercury and there's this big conspiracy going on and she's got on she's got to solve it even though she's kind of just a beat cop who gets hired for these very violent jobs because that's what her personality type is she is a person who's supposed to be a soldier someone who can inflict pain and kill others but she wants to be a police uh it's fucking amazing like i was so riveted like i was still like pulled into the story by issue two i couldn't stop reading i read all 12 issues in a sitting this book wow. was just terribly underrated. Um, Tia was a hundred percent right. I just want to make sure that she's been cl- she was you know selling this book on the show for months. Um, she was a hundred percent right. Uh, I had to kind of distance myself from Avatar, but I guess I was totally wrong. This book was amazing. I highly recommend it if you can get your hands on it. Um, I also read Seven to Eternity number eight, which was my pick last month or last week, I should say. Um, I was not disappointed. The story kind of twisted and went back on on beat of the we've got to kill this mud king and they fixed all the the character problems i i I don't know i'm back on seven to eternity i I feel like i'm going to be like this for the rest of the series so take everything i say with a grain of salt (laughs) at this point regarding this book (laughs) um i did read oh the art for this book was actually different um that james heron and matt hollingsworth did the um pencils and inks and colors um which is different from jeremy um 
Opinia, who normally is on the art. Um, but he, he was a good fill-in. I'm ready to have Opinia back, though, because his art is the best. Uh, I did read Batman number 28. This is Tom King and Michael Janin. Holy shit, the art in this book is worth it enough. You could get rid of all the words. I just want the art. Yeah. The story is really, really cool, but holy shit, the art is amazing. Uh, I don't really know what else to say about Batman right now because we're in the middle of this jokes and riddles storyline, and it's really, really cool. I'm ready to see it play out. Um, really excited to see how th- things get flash forwarded back to the future, where Batman and Catwoman are kind of chilling, and Batman <laughs> is telling this story. So, I don't know. I don't remember how long this arc is going to be, but it's pretty good. I, I'm really digging Batman, which is again a surprise to ten years ago, Mike. I don't think I'd ever <laughs> would say that. So, right. Yeah, definitely digging <laughs> it. Uh, Green River Killer. Nick has been harping on me. I need to read this book for the longest time, so I finally went and bought it. This is a story by Jeff Jensen with art by Jonathan Case. Uh, Green River Killer is a graphic novelization of the story of the, the detective who basically captured the Green River Killer in Seattle back in the 80s. It's a whole story that spans almost 30 years. Um, it's really, really put together. Like I, I was so impressed by the end of this book. It, again, this is one of those stories I sat down and I could not stop reading and when you get to the the final, I guess, chapter of the book, because it's it's broken up into chapters, but it's a big graphic novel, um, I, my my heart just broke in two, and the story ends in such a satisfying way that I, I you got to read this. This is a really beautiful nonfiction story um, that Jeff Jensen, who turns out is the son of the detective who actually captured the Green River Green River Killer, um, it's. It's so well done. I, I highly recommend this if you want a nonfiction book that just gets you. It's got crime. It's got intrigue. It's got a lot of really interesting flashbacks. To it's tell also the got story a very personal, two, two very personal stories. Yeah, and it's a very yeah. personal story about this detective and how he's been working this case for almost 30 years. And it's become his entire life's work. And to see it actually come to fruition and capture the guy, it's, oh, it's so satisfying. I mean, spoilers for the story because this thing happened in real life but you gotta read this this is a very interesting book Hmm. um finally i did read mercury or excuse me i read motor crush by uh babstar brendan fletcher and cameron stewart art by babstar and cameron stewart but they all collaborated on the story this book took me by total surprise because i did not expect it to do anything that it did Um, Really, I read issue one when it first came out because I I think Xander or Tia were telling me, like, this is one of those top-notch books out there. Mm -hmm. It didn't really catch me, but I promised myself I'd pick up the trade. And so I I did. I actually sat down and read it. And by issue four, the book was a completely different story in in the same – in the sense that it's in the same vein. It's – you didn't – I'm not saying this is one of those books that, like, promises one thing and delivers another. (laughs) But – they kick the entire story up to 11 by the fourth and fifth issue okay. to the point where I'm definitely addicted. Like I'm considering, I think I either need to pick this up in singles or do something to read this book because man, oh man, I am anxiously anticipating volume two. Like okay. it's, it's itching my skin. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um, Cause the I, cliffhanger. I, I remember reading the first issue and liking it, but not being sold completely. So that's exactly. exciting to know that maybe if I stuck with it or pick up the trade, it's it's worthwhile. Cool. Yeah, I, I think if you liked the first issue but you didn't continue, you need to get the trade. It's okay. so, so worth it. Good. I'll check it out. But All right. But anyways, let's move on. 
We're already taking up enough time. This isn't going to be like a four and a half hour episode like last week. So <laughs> let's get into our comic picks. Comics come out on August 9th, 2017. What are you guys excited for? Let's start with you, Paul. It's probably no surprise to anybody. My pick this week is Mr. Miracle Number 1 uh, by Tom King and Mitch Gerrids. I think that's, I'm never sure I pronounced that last name. But yeah. That's, the, of course, the creative team from Sheriff of Babylon, which is great. And, of course, mm-hmm. Tom King is kind of the patron writer of this podcast, it seems, at times, since uh, we kind of like <laughs> everything he does. Yeah. But So you have that creative team doing one of my very favorite DC characters, Mr. Miracle. I cannot wait for this book. As soon as it was announced, even before it was formally announced, when Tom King was just tweeting out random images that are apparently of the new gods or of Mr. Miracle, I was like, whatever book he's doing, I'm buying. So it's finally here. I guess for anyone that doesn't know, Mr. Miracle, the gimmick is that he's a super escape artist. And he ties into the larger Jack Kirby fourth world mythology because he was Mm -hmm. raised on the planet Apocalypse. Came to Earth. He was the only person ever escape Apocalypse, hence the super escape artist you know, uh, moniker. <laughs> he yeah. comes to, comes to Earth, and he actually becomes an escape artist. Like that's his job. He puts on shows. He's a magician, and then manages to you know hang out with the Justice League and other superheroes. He has a <laughs> like, home like life, you <laughs> like you do. He's that happily really married. Gives me faith for like the future of like extraterrestrial encounters. Oh, what are yeah. they going to contribute to our society? Well, he's basically going to perform a you know you know <laughs> ringling you know Barnum and Bailey circus yeah. act of sorts. Uh, you always need that. But the, 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 the core of the character is actually, I think, his relationship with his wife, Big Barda, one of the coolest characters ever created. Um, they have a very like stable, loving re- marriage relationship, which is, seems kind of rare in comics. You know, she hasn't ended up in a, in a refrigerator like some <laughs> girls, girlfriends, unfortunately. Uh, and they're yeah. happily married. And I, I think I've always read that as Jack Kirby's fictionalized version of his own life like he's happily Mm. married and my wife is one that takes care of the business aspect why i can be creative and that's basically maps onto mr miracle pretty well so given tom king's work on the vision which i just read the first volume of and absolutely loved i think he can crush any type of domesticated life type story like this um obviously there's going to be a little bit more to it than just uh, two happily married people, but that's why I'm along the ride to see. I'm, I'm, I cannot wait for this book. I'm so excited, and all the advanced buzz and advanced reviews have been super glowing. I think it's going to be a not even a Dark Horse surprise hit. I think it's going to be a huge book across the board. That's awesome. This was going to be my pick as well, and I realized that you were on the show. <laughs> I couldn't pick it. <laughs> right. Well, thanks. <clears throat> Nick, what about you? Look, that was gonna be my pick too. Okay, like, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I think what's really interesting is that um, King has shown that he's very familiar and comfortable with this idea of the twelve issue maxi series. Mm-hmm. Yet, like Omega Men was this weird, come out of nowhere, absolute like, like, like absolute surprise hit people are like what the fuck is this i would even say the omega men are like infinitely more obscure than than mr miracle is honestly Mm -hmm. um so it's kind of weird because like here's here's king doing the same sort of thing but definitely more well-known character definitely Mm -hmm. thankfully you know it's very topical because of course kirby and whatnot and his 100th birthday but it will be interesting to see how this goes considering that i think the expectation and the 
you know, um, knowledge about this going in is so much higher than than last time. So, yeah. but um, you know, I, uh, I I I take picks of the week very seriously as my opportunity to give a book a leg up that it so desperately uh, would not have without my assistance. So I said, yeah, yeah, the definitely. show must go on. <laughs> I, I, I still got to find something else, something else. And my phone's always ringing off the hook. Nick, we need your help. Stop reading my book, please. Don't talk about it. Um. <laughs> So I just want to quickly plug Grass King 6, Boom Comics, Matt Kent writing, Tyler Jenkins doing the art, um, watercolors. Uh, I honestly don't know how in the world or where in the world this issue is going to go um, for a book that is very grounded in the real world and sort of uh, rural America, I guess you could say. Um like the last issue more or less turned this sort of do what you want, live how you want, we're free from the law and 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 government interference sort of utopia of sorts uh, and basically turned it into a war zone. Matt Kent went and basically played chorus of the bells all over this book and not one of them is going to get <laughs> unrung anytime soon. Uh, I have no idea where this book is going. I, I don't know if Matt Kent got a weird idea and figured he was going to wrap this up at, at issue six, because after five, like, I don't honestly know where this is going to go. Hmm. Uh, so, again, if, if you haven't read it, I don't know where the trade's going to roll out. I don't know really where they're going to cut this book to, to put it into a trade, um, but definitely, definitely, definitely pick this up, especially because with the... With the first couple issues really having a bit of a slow burn effect, I think in trade, the tolerance for getting through that will be a lot smoother. Yeah, this is one of those books that I definitely want to pick up in trade, if only because I'm I'm already buying too many Matt Kemp books. <laughs> so um, you know what? He can he can have my money later on this one. For me this week, I am reading. I'm very excited for Redlands number one by Jordi Belair and Vanessa Del Rey. Um, this is a horror book from Jordi Belair, and at this point, I just want to support Jordi Belair and anything that she does. She has done right so many times, I can't imagine that she could ever really do wrong. So mm -hmm. I'm going to pick this book up. I'm not really into horror comics, but at the same time, Vanessa Del Rey's art is fucking top-notch, and I've never heard, I've never read anything by Jordi Belair, at least that I can think of. So I'm really excited to see how this book turns out. Like, I know nothing about it other than it's a horror book in Florida. So, we'll see. And, I'm, I'm and just looking to be at the absolutely image. clear for our listeners, Mike, we are talking about the typically a colorist Jordi Belair moving yes. into a writing role. Yes. yes. Um, I'm looking at the image solicit or the image post that says, The police are failing to maintain control of their old-fashioned town, and a coven of wi killer witches plans to take everything from them. So, it, the, <laughs> the final line is, This summer, hide your Bibles. <laughs> uh, so I'm on board. Let's, sure. let's see how this turns out. Um, <laughs> again, I'm totally excited for a book like this, like just to give Jordi Belair a try for sure. Um, I'm really hoping that this kicks butt. And the, the praise on the image page is already really great. Scott Snyder is totally loving it. Tom King. Warren Ellis's review is nice fucking job. So <laughs> I, can get on, I can get on board with that. These people may all be biased because I'm pretty sure she's colored all their books. But oh, <laughs> that being said, uh, I'm, I'm going to trust this book. I'm definitely going to go in with my, with my bar very, very high um, because horror, is, like I said, is not my genre. So we'll see how this turns out. Um, I have a feeling I'm going to love it. Just, just from the cover alone, it looks real gruesome, and that could be a lot of fun. Yeah. Quote, unquote, fun. 
Cool, yeah. <laughs> the same way that, you know, the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina was fun. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> show this week is all about DC Rebirth, but not so much about the stories within DC Rebirth, about DC Rebirth as a product, as a thing. We, we've talked about DC Rebirth a ton on the show when right before it was announced, right after it was announced, we did little mini like episodes about Rebirth and what it means for DC readers. And now that we're a year in, the question is, how is it doing? How is everything going? What are the surprises? What are the pitfalls? Where do we see DC excelling? Where do we see DC kind of falling behind? Uh, I know I put this on our show schedule a while back, and I think for the last two or three weeks, Nick has been frantically writing notes and spending all of his time thinking about this when he's not working and sleeping. So um, <laughs> let's let's start with Nick. What are your initial thoughts? And when that half hour is over, Nick and I will talk, or Paul and I will yeah. talk. Yeah, you, you guys can go, you know, watch two showings of Titanic back to back and then the extended cut version of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And probably about halfway through that second uh, showing of Return of the King, uh, I should be done. Okay, um, good. Okay, good. How, how has DC no. Rebirth actually been like for you as a, as a big DC fan? I think we've, we've got our, you know, people on the show in different camps of the stuff that they primarily read or they can talk about. And you've always mm-hmm. been more of a DC person. As a person who, you know, probably went full in on Rebirth, how has it been for you this last year? Yeah, well, I mean, f- first, Michael, I want to go back and, and qualify things. I I wouldn't say that I'm I'm so much of like a hardcore DC fanboy, and 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 I know those weren't your words, and and I would also say, I, I mean, Paul, you can correct me, but I think both of us sort of we know where to draw the line, like when DC's being ridiculous, and we're not like there are people who buy every single DC book mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter who's on it. It doesn't matter if it's good. It doesn't matter if it's bad. Uh, it doesn't matter if it crosses over. Like people are just on autopilot for that. And I, I think Paul and I sort of know where to draw the sure. line. That's right. not what I was implying. Yeah. And I, and, and, and I think that's kind of important because I, I know some people when they hear, you know, so-and-so is such a huge fanboy then it's like all right grain of salt with everything and i i think i think at least on some level paul and i are sort of even keeled when it comes to the bullshit that a big sure. publisher can can put out um but that being said uh i mean let me let me just quick give the like 30 second primer for those who aren't aware uh so dc rebirth began on may 25th 2016 with the release of DC Universe Rebirth Special Number One, that was a big oversized one shot by Jeff Johns and a handful of artists, and I think they were selling it for like two bucks, and it was mm-hmm. it was a massive deal. It was a very smart way to get people in. Oh yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people were asking, well, what what was like what was this set to accomplish? And I think for the most part, and I Paul disagree if you want, but more or less the core thing was opening the door for literally anything in the DC universe, in the legacy of DC, to come streaming through, basically. Um, New 52 was much more about putting things in a box and keeping that box in isolation um, and sort of making a very self-contained world. And Rebirth was much more about saying DC has this 
rich and robust and confusing and annoying and also confusing legacy. And we want to open the door to virtually the possibility of any of that coming through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's basically what Rebirth did. And yeah, so, of I course, think... when people heard that, a lot of the old school fans were very happy and a lot of the newer-ish readers got a little bit scared and said, hold, hold on, like, what's, what's going on here? So beyond that, Rebirth accomplished a few other brief things. I'm just going to go through here. Um, uh, issues were attempt; they attempted to keep issues at 2.99 for all books. That being said, that didn't stay true because the books that came out once a month were then bumped up to uh, 3.99 with a digital copy. Which brings me to the other point, which was that DC decided that they were going to put out significantly less books than the New 52. And they were going to double ship the more popular titles. So that's basically the core tenant of DC. Big characters, more books about those big characters, um, lower prices but double shipping, and um, the bringing back the original issue numberings for detective and action comics. And those are sort of, at least for me, the core elements of what Rebirth started as basically it's interesting to to compare that to what they did with the new 52 which is basically a hard reboot rebirth felt like a little bit of a softer reboot where you had some a lot of creative teams change and you had new number ones but it was less of a harsh we're starting from scratch as the new 52 was and i think that's the reason rebirth has succeeded at least in my eyes in terms of the product um you have some shakeups on the creative teams and you had new takes on characters. And I, I think one thing we talked about maybe on the show when we talked about the new rebirth when it started, it was like the books felt action-packed. There was a sense of uh, dynamism to the books. There's some forward movement. The stories were engaging, which felt very different from the New 52 relaunch. And mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. the, the successes for me with Rebirth are those titles like Batman and Superman and Batwoman where you had new creative teams and sort of not new takes on the characters, but a willingness to take the characters places they hadn't been before. And I think those are the reasons that those are the books I'm still reading are Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman because of that approach where you do have an approach that says we're not going to be stuck in a hard line continuity we're going to be more open with the characters and take them to different places and that's why those books have succeeded i can't really speak to the rest of the lines those are the really the only books i've been reading since the beginning but the overall sense i get is that that sort of new push for different types of creative team matchups is why rebirth has succeeded in the way that new 52 didn't yeah exactly and mm-hmm. and for me um, I went into Rebirth, and this goes back to what I was saying. I went into Rebirth only reading um, Batman, All Star Batman, The Hellblazer, and Green Arrow, and I think that's it. Um, yeah, that that sounds about right. Uh, and as for where things currently stand, and we'll get at we'll get at this later, um, because Rebirth hasn't canceled any of those books. Um, I myself canceled the Hellblazer, um, but that's been it. Um, I found I found the rest to be very solid, and the Hellblazer really just suffered from 
some art uh, shuffling that I didn't really enjoy, a move away from the uh, introductory artist who wasn't even on rotation but just never came back, um, and just some questionable issues in that regard. And that sort of touches at like my other, I think what was really my big question for Rebirth, which was, we're talking about double shipping, we're talking about rotating artist teams on books, how well is this going to be executed? How sustainable is it going to be? I remember we were talking at the time about how certain books were already had like a third artist that was waiting in the wings, maybe even a fourth artist that was going to be waiting in the wings. Um, how is this going to shape the uh, look and feel of books? And did it feel like it was just going to be a very like piecemeal, um, you know, here's here's two inkers, three colorists, and four pencilers getting this <laughs> other issue out on time. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I remember being very scared, very cynical about this. And I, you know, I'll I, I admit it sometimes when I'm wrong, but I was completely wrong. So far, I have been very, very, very impressed with how well this has been done. My Green Arrow book, uh, Juan Ferreira and Otto Schmidt on art. Both of them look pretty different from one another, but both of them really well match the tone of the book. They do tend to switch back and forth between arcs. I think that helps with the consistency. Yes, it has had, I think, I can't remember her last name, but Elena something has done a little bit of fill-in pencils, but it hasn't been gratuitous. It hasn't been excessive. Um, With Batman, you had a back and forth between uh, Michael Janine and David Finch, and I feel like that has also been very consistent. Um, not a lot of extra people coming into the midst. In fact, I maybe only Clay Mann to help with one issue, and that was yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, although what a beautiful issue that didn't was. Rosmo, didn't Rosmo technically draw the Batman issues during the Monster Men? Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah. did. Anyway, yeah, he did. We're, we're splitting hairs, and, and Rosmo, <laughs> uh, Rosmo comes onto my book. That's a blessing. That's not a curse. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. But I I think they've managed that rotating artist thing really really well. I don't know about you guys. The only the only shakeup that I really had was the Hellblazer, for instance. You know, I think they were they were rotating like two or three artists in on that book, and it got really hard to follow. Um, yeah. And and ultimately, like the the story wasn't as riveting to me as as some of the other books, like for like Batman, for instance. I mean, we're gonna say Batman a lot in this episode. I'm really sorry, <laughs> but that book is really the like golden gem right now, and I think that goes to Tom King um, for top notch writing. This is the Tom King show. Thank you for listening. Um, <laughs> but ultimately, like I I was reading the Flash. I think I was, I dropped the Flash at issue 24. Um, mm-hmm. and I, the only problem I had with that book is they, the swap was really weird where they were, they would go three issues on three issues off and then it became really inconsistent and they had a third artist jump in for a second. Um, and I was really hoping to get a six and six break, um, because it, it, if you tr- you're changing artists in the middle of an arc kind of is funky if the art styles aren't the same. And mm-hmm. I think when it first happened in flash, I was a little off put, but it wasn't so bad in the later issues. I, I kind of wasn't feeling the the art. I kind of wasn't feeling the story. So I, I, the art thing really started my, like I guess, downward spiral in how much I really wanted to read that book. Um, sure. And, I, I mean, I'm not trying to say that that's a bad book. I think it's a solid Flash book, but it, I definitely lost interest. Um, and the art didn't help that. I mean, the art changes, I should say, because the art was actually very, very good. Like, don't get me wrong. I think Carmen D. D. Mark. I can never say his last name. Um, his art is probably some of my favorite 
um, out there in comics. But te- the the swap ins and swap outs, you'd get some inconsistency in characters, and that can, like again, I think that is the biggest off putting thing when you've got those weird schedules. I know there was a lot of um, like I don't want to say uproar, but I know there's a lot of people talking about the changes and how they did things in Wonder Woman, um, where right, I think right. it was every issue yeah. it was an opposite artist, and and they were telling separate stories, and that's fine. But I think that that's very jarring for readers sometimes, um, especially if they're looking for just a straightforward story. And I'm not trying to discredit people by saying that they can't follow it, but I could see how that could be problematic, where you've got yeah. two months between issues or you've got, I mean, I, you would only have a month between stories, but you're still reading two books side by side about the same yeah. character following mm-hmm. maybe relatively similar storylines to try to do a parallel plot. Um, so I, I don't know. I know that a lot of people had a problem with that, too. So that that's another yeah. example that I heard of. Yeah, I mean, I was reading Wonder Woman for a while, I guess, um, and I had that, that issue. I didn't think it detracted from the book, but I just found it distracting in a weird way, yeah. personally. And I think... That kind of is a disadvantage because the one of the stories they were telling was a great sort of Wonder Woman year one type origin story with Greg Rucker writing it. Um, who was on art? I think Nicola Scott. Scott was. Yeah, yeah so Scott or Sharp. It. Sharp yeah. was the other one that was alternating. So I think it was Scott was doing the year one. And it's, it's a perfect creative team, right? Rucker and yeah. Scott doing Wonder Woman. It was great. Oh, yeah. And I think there's a disadvantage with them intersplicing the the current time story with that, with the double shipping, I have to imagine that when they did the first trade, they just collected the year one stuff. That's exactly what happened. I was just about to say, like, if you want to ask how DC felt about how well people were going to process that, yeah, the trades are coming out with just the the Scott and one and just the Sharp and the other. Well, I think part of that has to be the success of the movie. They want to have a book they can sell to new fans. And that year one, that origin story, that's a perfect jump on point for new fans who saw the movie. So that's a smart way to do it. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe that speaks to the issue of double shipping, which it's a double-edged sword. Because on one hand, I really love getting two issues of Batman a month. But (laughs) I don't think it it suits the Superman book very well. Really? I just don't think to... Yeah, I, I I think maybe it's the current story that's going on right now. I just I find it it's not paced very well for a double shipped book. And mm. um, Tom King's Batman, there have been a few issues where I think you know maybe this was a, a part of this could have been a single issue, but it's split into two. I notice those things with double shipped books. And the other issue is that that eats up two books that I could be adding to my pull list. You know what yeah. I mean? I'm working on a budget, so double shipping Batman and Superman means those are two DC or other books that I'm not reading that I could be. And of course, they tried to uh, lessen that blow by you know locking things in at three bucks. So right, yeah. you're spending six instead of eight. But yes, your your point stands. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. right. I was going to say the weird thing for me is that my biggest suspicion was going to be just look. The books that come out once a month are going to be like evenly paced and perfectly fine, and the double-shipped books are going to feel like a hot mess. And oddly for me, I feel like a lot of the double-shipped books, um, I'm enjoying them a lot more than the single-shipped books. Okay. Um, but uh, then again, like I know most people aren't reading Green Arrow, uh, and that book is just absolutely fantastic right now. Uh, I think the best kept secret about that book, and I think I even said this on the show last week, is that it really is a team book. 
mm-hmm. with Black Canary and with Diggle and Emiko, his younger half sister, and and Fifth, his tech expert. Um, I've really really enjoyed that. I think that's probably been the biggest surprise. Um, All Star Batman has been. <sighs> I sort of feel like <laughs> Scott Snyder. This editor could have like laid into him a little bit harder with that book. I feel mm-hmm. like they let him get a little loose and it waxes really poetic at certain points when maybe it doesn't need to be. Um, but I feel like that's really an apples and oranges sort of book with these different rotational artists and, and sort of these villain villain a month looks at things. But you know what? Any book that gets me like Tula Lote, Jock, um, Raphael Albuquerque, mm-hmm. um, uh, gosh, who else? Uh, I think Giuseppe Carmuncoli did the Mad Hatter issue. Like any any book that's getting me all of this fantastic art within just a few months of one another, like you you, you really can't go wrong there. Right. So, um, but yeah, I I've I've really enjoyed Rebirth. I think when you hear just the general from the media outlets that I consume, I should put it that way, um, f- from the ones I pay attention to, I've felt that everyone is like, oh man, DC, DC's doing it right, so to speak, and Marvel, what a mess. Marvel doesn't know what they're doing. Um, gee, Nick, is, is one always juxtaposed with the other? Yes. No, you, yes. you cannot talk about one without belittling the other. It's, you know, it's written down there. It's like the 12th commandment, if you right. were to pay attention or something. Right. Um, but yeah, that's 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 my general consensus. I, I think it's really interesting when you you know compare that with the the, the statistics and whatnot. But yeah, yeah, I mean, and speaking, um, I mean, I guess Paul, I want I'll give you a chance to answer the same sure. question, even though I feel like you've probably said a lot of what you wanted to say. But has <laughs> Rebirth been working for you as as a I guess longtime DC fan? I'm not saying you're a DC fanboy and that's all you care about and yada yada. But uh, <laughs> I know that you read DC D- yeah. more. Paul than is I grounded. Do. Paul is a grounded fan. I think that's probably the best way <laughs> I, to, I, to put yeah, it. Yeah, I'm a critical fan. I'll put it that sure, way. So, sure. Um, yeah. I think I've enjoyed. I've really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it more than I enjoyed the new Fifty Two relaunch. Um, I think what's interesting about Rebirth for me is, on one hand, it's it feels it it's a line wide relaunch, but at the same time, the books kind of feel more or less self contained, and part of that is because they haven't had a line wide crossover until Metal, which I think starts next month. But they aside from gone, Justice League Suicide Squad, which was semi line, like, well, I mean, right, right, right. But yeah, I mean, line Monster wide. Man. I mean, th- we've, there have been mini crossovers, but not a an event. that Paul's talking big scale. Thing. Yeah, like I think, summer I think that, epic yeah. summer event. Yeah. I think, and that's what I've enjoyed about it, is that yeah, there was the crossover between Batman and Flash, which hinted at a larger issue of Rebirth, which is the Watchmen apparently are showing up. We're not the Watchmen, but Watchmen characters <laughs> are showing up. Um, and you have in the background of this whole rebirth, you have a sort of continuity wide issue that's being teased, but it's not driving the creative elements of the individual titles. Whereas Uh again, and I'm someone that only knows of Marvel tangentially because I don't read a lot of those titles and the titles I do read, as I mentioned earlier, sort of outside of the main continuity, but it feels like as long as I've been back reading comics regularly again for the past, maybe like 10 years now, Marvel's just in a constant event push, right? There's always an oh, event happening I mean, around the cusp. Yeah. 
It's, it, and I think, at some point, your book's going to hit an event is pretty much what it comes down to. Yeah. No book is safe. <laughs> unless, you, <laughs> unless you've got a book like The Vision or you've got like a mini series or your Star Wars, you know? Right. Yeah, and I think DC's been smart that way. Where the New 52, they had a like crossovers right away. Um, this Night Rebirth, of the Court of Owls, yeah. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. And Rebirth more or less has been crossover free and the big one that's coming up is metal which i don't even it doesn't feel like a cross a line-wide crossover to me because i think it's more or less self-contained in a miniseries it's one creative team doing it and it just it doesn't have the same uh stink of a big event <laughs> or the yeah. same sense of event fatigue that i, I had in the past maybe just because it hasn't been a long a big one in a while but across the board i think as a dc fan and someone that loves nerdy, deep continuity stuff, Rebirth has been hitting that button for me, but not laying into it too hard. If that makes sense. If that metaphor works. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that to go back to Nick's point saying that people think it's a success, um, I I mean, looking at the numbers, do we think so? I know, Nick, you pulled some numbers. Comicron is a beautiful, beautiful website that exists out there to calculate statistics and various pieces of information about the comic industry from a numbers standpoint. And I know that you went through and you kind of combed through the last year's worth of sales from DC, um, especially specifically regarding, you know, three major books, Batman, Green Arrow, and Aquaman, um, which I think we can almost rank as top selling, mid-tier selling, and low selling. Um, how yeah. do the numbers yeah. like factor into this to say like is this successful? Is it only successful for the you know the Trinity you know of Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman? Maybe Justice League is thrown in there, or does it seem like a wide line, like medium success, not hitting all number ones every month, but hitting at least the top ten or fifteen? Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I mean, the the first thing is like. Could, could I have done more? Like, wow, there's like Nick's driving mantra right there. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't go with any books that weren't double shipped. I didn't have time to get into that. I also didn't go with anything that I thought was going to be like really in trouble. <coughs> Cough, Blue Beetle. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, okay. And of course, the problem with Aquaman is that since Jeff Johns really made him bigger during the New 52, he's not as much of a bench warmer as he used to be. Um, but that being said, yeah, if you want to look at Rebirth on a very broad scale, there are some like major salient points to bring up, especially in terms of sales, which first off the bat, you know, here's Rebirth. We're, you know, we're, we're launching with a very, very, very small amount of books, you know, relative to the new 52 here. You know, we're talking about, um, gosh, what did I say, 29? Yeah, I think. yeah, 29. Mm-hmm. So we've got we've got Rebirth coming out. We've only got 29 books instead of 52. Uh, over the course only. of the next year, we are going <laughs> right. to only add three books. Uh, over the course of the New 52's first year, they added 10 books. I don't know if some people either remember or didn't know, but one of the big mantras of the New 52, and I think they abandoned it later on, was that there will always be 52 books. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how many we cancel. We will replace each and every single one of them. But uh, so with Rebirth, we, we start with 29, we add three over the next year, um, and two of those books were even mentioned at the very beginning when all the Rebirth titles were announced. They were just big stragglers. So if you want to talk about Rebirth having a master plan, even most of those um, those itty-bitty amount of additions, those were planned. Um, but since then, no cancellations, largely no additions, which is very, very interesting. 
especially when you want to talk about sales. No books are getting rebooted. No books are getting canceled. There's really no opportunity to get some new number ones in there to pad up the sales or bounce things back. Um, and at least for me, like the, the figures make sense. And you, you always have to go with a big picture glance at things because you can really never look at the, you know, obviously you can basically take any of the numbers for new number ones and just throw it out the window. It means nothing. <laughs> yeah. It means absolutely nothing. <laughs> just throw it in the trash, okay? Because it's, it's just... It's nothing. Um, if you want to say, wow, that's a really great flash in the pan, w welcome to Marvel's playbook, okay? Because they know that. <laughs> right. Um, mm -hmm. And you have to look at the drop-off to number two, and even then, like, for me at least, a lot of the number two figures, th those things almost go in the trash for me as well. It's like, okay, like, let's, let's give it two or three months, then we'll see where you're at. And at least for me, it looks like DC... Um, depreciation is pretty in line with what it should be. You know, Batman Batman number one sold 280,000 copies. That dropped to 177,000 by number two. And again, you can just largely throw that out the window. But by number six, it was still selling 138. Um, and to go from 177 to 138 over the course of four issues, especially so early on issues, mm -hmm. that's pretty good. I yeah. think that's yeah. You're that's still holding. You're still holding on to you know fifty percent of your readers based on the number one almost. So <laughs> like yeah, when you're holding fifty percent of a new number one six issues out, yeah, yeah. that's good. And so I guess and so Batman is kind of like I, and I ranked them earlier saying we've got three options here: Batman, Green Arrow, and Aquaman. Uh, Green Arrow's numbers are kind of surprising, and in fact, by like even by issue six. Um, just looking at these stats, and I'll actually post a Google Doc to this in our show notes if anyone's interested, um, with some links to Chromicron just for anyone who really wants to get into the numbers. But like, you're looking at Green Arrow number one with just under seventy thousand sale in sales. Number two, seventy two thousand. And but don't by, ask me how that happened. I don't understand that part. That's, that's very strange. Yeah, yeah I, I wonder if the TV show had something to do with it. I don't know because it's not like it premiered until September anyways, but by issue number six of green arrow, um, we're looking at 55,000 and that's a serious hold on in, you know, over three months, um, to say that they had almost 70% of their readers still there. But by issue 24, which came out in June, they're down to 27,000. So I'm wondering mm -hmm. like where, where did those readers go? Did we lose people? I mean, Nick, you said you do read this book, so maybe you have some insight into that. But if you compare it to Batman, by issue 24, there was like a weird thing, and this is where the Catwoman, Catwoman story comes in and may have a factor into it. Batman was still holding 116,000 readers compared to the 138 for number six. So that's like a very consistent plateau that I think DC likes to see. Um, yeah. With a book like this, whereas Green Arrow, we see like a definite dive, which ends up, which usually means a book is not doing so hot. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess I don't know. Was there some significant change in Green Arrow that you think could have caused that, or is this just natural drop off? Yeah, like that's like I said earlier. That's what's so frustrating for me is before you know I looked at any of this information, I would have said you know I feel I feel pretty good about everything. Um, Green Arrow did have a slight amount of fill-in work. Uh, the arcs did get a little bit longer, but it was still just your regular injection of new elements and new characters and things like that, and so there's nothing I, I can really point at. But, you know, the real question from there is you look at Batman, Batman feels pretty good. You look at Green Arrow, and if you're just a normal publisher that doesn't seem to have any weird 
um, overarching goals or anything, you look at that and you say, geez, this book is on a collision course with us having to make some sort of a decision. <laughs> Maybe. And, and of course, like, if, if, if you believe in this whole, like, rebirth mantra, then you go, well, uh, I, I, I haven't seen any announcements about any cancellations, so w- what is this book going to look at three to four months from now? And, and w- what is DC going to do about that? Which, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's very odd in that regard, and it's, you, you have to wonder what they're going to do, especially because, at least for, for me, when I look at DC, there are certain books that never get canceled. Yeah, they might struggle. Course. They might have yeah. problems. They might really have problems. <coughs> Cough. New 52 Green Arrow. Um, but they never get canceled. You just switch things up enough and the book j- jumps back up, hopefully. Uh, and Jeff Lemire and Andrea Sorrentino coming on, on Green Arrow is, is an excellent example of that. But if, if you look at Rebirth and you say, let's look at the trends, let's look at what seems to be guiding um, this uh, this movement like the whole idea of no cancellations and you look at that and you're like what what are you guys going to do especially because a consistency in art teams and a consistency in just just teams overall seems to be another one of these mantras which is of course a, a huge double-edged sword <laughs> well yeah i mean it's interesting to look at these numbers and think about that and just, if they have a commitment to not cancel anything you have to have be able to absorb some bad sales, and I mean across the board, the whole industry is on a on a downward slump. I mean, it's not just DC. I mean, right. just, you're seeing the uh, the whole industry, and I I just I think that a focus on good, consistent, creative teams will carry you or weather you through any sort of sales slump. Yeah, and I I think DC, and this might be deviating a little bit from the the rebirth itself, but I think the biggest success of DC since last year, since they launched the rebirth, has been the Young Animal series, where you have a focus on lesser known or newer characters, you know, younger creative teams, little off the wall book. They're in continuity, but they don't ever cross over really, more or less, with the main continuity. Right. And those are books that I think are geared toward trades they're geared toward um readers that are newer they're geared toward people that don't probably don't even like superhero comics and that to me has been the biggest success it's geared towards the people that stand in front of their friends and go oh superhero comics i don't read those um <laughs> <laughs> i mean but but those are the books i'm most excited about as sure. much as i'm liking batman and Cave carson uh, batman, is the fucking best thing ever that's the, some of the best stuff coming out right now so, I mean, right. that might be helping offset some of these big jump slumps in their more mainstream superhero titles. Yeah, and I think Paul just hit the nail on the head, which is if you look at this blueprint of Rebirth and you assume that nothing is going to change, then you have to ask the question. I know there are some DC executives looking at the same information, possibly more detailed information, and what's their fucking endgame, really? And right. I think it's borrowing a page from Image the image plan of 
trades will save us. So mm-hmm. the end goal is before we get to trades, we need things to be as accessible as possible getting to that trade point, not changing teams, not rebo- not rebooting books, keeping our, uh, our issue numbering consistent. So when we go to trades, people see the same artists, they see consistent numbering, they don't see multiple volumes number, number ones, they find the book, they grab the right volume, and it's accessible and it's easy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you look at Rebirth, as a with trades as an endpoint, it actually starts to kind of click into place. Let's tell quality stories. Let's not play. Let's not get into the bag of tricks with number ones, or crossovers, or events. And let's just do. Let's just make things uh, angle towards trades. And that even becomes more clear when you look at the fact that DC's New 52 trade model, which I enjoyed because I'm a weird person, was that the hardcover (laughs) book came out first. And then when hardcover hardcover book volume number two came out, that's when softcover book number one came out. And when hardcover Mm -hmm. book number three came out, that's when softcover book volume two came out. And they've actually flipped that around. And now... Uh, the first volume that comes out is a soft cover, and then after a certain period of time, a hard cover comes out. But that hard cover is going to include soft cover volumes one and two. Oh. So it's a much more accessible model that puts lower prices first, more accessible prices first, and allows for smaller collections, which of course also makes things a little bit more easier on the wallet. So when yeah. I look at that, in addition to everything else. Like, it feels like we're borrowing from Images Playbook, which, of course, is not a dumb thing to do at all. Right. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I think like, indus- the, across the board in the industry, I think it's trades and graphic novel sales that are actually saving the industry. Well, the numbers that we're looking at here, we spoke about so far, have been single-issue floppy sales. And this it mostly mm-hmm. only includes physical. I think there's some estimation on digital, but no one really has any right. hard data on digital. This doesn't include anything but North yeah. America. It yeah. doesn't include digital. It doesn't include... Um, books that go to second third fourth reissues yes. right so what's what's interesting to say is that like sure maybe the industry looks like it's on a downward slope for single issues i think that's just going to be the continuing trend for a long time yeah. until we get any information about digital we won't really know how that's doing because you don't know like maybe you know green arrow is selling really well in digital singles because people just don't want the physical books anymore um we don't know but i think that regardless there is a trend that you can see from comicron you can hear across many different websites that there is an uptick in graphic novels and collected edition sales because people just don't want to spend either as much money over a long period of time um, and it's much easier to just store Right. Um, and, I, right. and I think digital yeah. sales are the same way. Right. Like my best guess would be the digital trade sales are probably crazy high because usually you're getting a serious discount. Like especially if you look at the prices on Amazon compared to an actual mm-hmm. physical paperback, usually looking at ten dollars across the board. Marvel and DC maybe have a little bit of an exception, but a lot of the times the digital collected editions of books are way cheaper. Um, and so until we can, you know, somehow get that data from whatever, I don't know if Amazon or Comixology is going to release that data ever, um, we can't really mm. know how that's doing. But I think on the whole, there is an understood trend that collected editions are selling better than they were, say, 10 years ago. Um, and that's mm-hmm. why you see so many more available options of collected editions, specifically at shows. If you go to comic conventions, I've been to New York City Comic Con twice now. 
And Images Booth, they don't even sell any singles. There's no singles on the table at all. It is all collected editions. Um, same goes for same goes for Dark Horse. They don't sell any. Well, actually, that's not true. They usually have a small bookshelf of dit singles, but then everything else is graphic novels and collected editions of books um, and special editions of books, which people go apeshit over. So I, I think that we're seeing an <laughs> uptick in in those types of sales, if only because people want whole stories at you know from the get go. Um, you can be that person that reads the single issues every month, but the majority of fans out there, especially new readers and people that f- are finally ready to get into comics and stuff like that, they want a collected edition, um, which is right. why you'll see a lot more books survive past the you know four or five issue mark, um, Marvel withstanding, um, to see how the trade sales do. Um, because if the <laughs> trade sales kick butt, then that single issue story is going to keep going every month waiting for the next volume. Right. Um, I think... You can you can point at any image book and you can see that to be completely true. Right. And I think what's genius about um, double shipping, especially when you want to talk about the concept of trades, is that double shipping, of course, increases you know, quite literally, you know, or at least in theory, it doubles the speed at which you have more trades coming out. And of course, with people that are they don't really have their finger on the pulse of things, and I guess by that I mean they aren't buying single issues. The idea that you've got more trades coming out frequently uh, puts these books in trade buyers' minds you know, so much more readily and so much more frequently. Uh, you're not just sort of waiting around a year for the next book, maybe half a year. Now you're waiting maybe a quarter of a year or just half a year for the next volume, and right. so these books you know, manage to keep themselves in people's minds a lot easier, and, and I think that works too. Um, so then I, I guess DC's big question is, are we, if, if the trades are going to make up the difference, are we concerning ourselves with just flat out telling good stories? And I think in that regard, they're, they're doing a great job. Yeah. I think that that could be the biggest success. I mean, numbers and sales aside, I think across the board, everything I've ever heard about, especially about books I don't read is that people are pretty enthused about these books still a year in. So that says yeah. a lot to their commitment to injecting new blood into the creative teams. You know, having someone like Jeff Johns uh, step aside, really, from the um, editorial aspect of the the DC line. He's doing mm-hmm. more stuff with movies and TV now. Obviously, he's going to be doing whatever the big Watchmen reveal will be down the road. But having him or whatever they're calling it, yeah. 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 Having him step aside and having someone like Tom King uh, step into the Batman, which is... Their big, I have to assume, their biggest selling book. I mean, Batman is the most yeah, popular character is. that they have. So, I mean, that I think that speaks to their commitment, like you said, to telling good stories, um, regardless of you know the numbers. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know yeah. if you guys have have much more, but you know, I think we can wrap up. I think we've 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 said all that needs to be said. Maybe we'll do another status update <laughs> in a year or something. But um, sure, let's let's round out the show. <laughs> I hate this new credits thing, even though I was the person that decided we should do it. Um, <laughs> I mean, really, I we so you can follow the show. You can follow all of us on Twitter. Um, Nick, you can follow on Twitter at Death Star Plans. It's spelled really weird, and he spelled it last week. So go listen to Death that. Death like Mega Death Star like it should be in plans. Like there's no vowels so and, and a z the, and a z yeah 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 oh yeah that too geez yeah nick you got the weirdest handle um he's he's, he's a private account so you you'll be one of the chosen few if he lets you follow him um <laughs> that's right and i picked the name before rogue one so you know <laughs> way ahead of the curve on that so uh paul you are on twitter as as oh hi Polly. what else is up oh with hi you hi Polly. 
Um, oh, hi, Paul. You can find me there on Twitter and Instagram if you want to see my, my mug on your phone, pictures I take. You can also find my other podcast that I do, Spike Pile Driver. It's about professional wrestling. Me and my buddy, Mean Matt, we do it twice a month. Find that on all your various podcast platforms and on Twitter at Spike Pile Pod. Yeah, you guys have the coolest art for a podcast ever, by the way. I just, <laughs> I just want to put that out there. Logo. You really should that. be. It's you really so should be. It's so good. <laughs> you, can, you can follow me on Twitter at Mike Rappin. Um, you can also follow the show at IRCB Podcast. I started today writing Medium articles about X-Men questions, so you can also find me on Medium at, at Mike Rappin. It's a whole thing. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know where this whole thing with questions is going. My buddy Renee threw, like... 10 or so questions at me and I plan to answer them all in very long semi-detailed um, totally biased articles <laughs> yeah he's he's like I've got questions you're like oh that's interesting and then he posts like a picture of a moleskin notebook with a <laughs> yeah. it looked like something out of like memento or, or the sort of reddit thread where someone's like I found this in my basement guys I need help what's mm-hmm. going on so I'm <laughs> documenting that on top of that, you can follow us uh, on our Goodreads group. Just go ahead and Google Goodreads, I read comic books. It's probably the number one search result. Heck, I think you can Google I read comic books, and I think our the Goodreads page is the number one search result then as well. So you'll get there. It's not a concern of that. Um, you can go there, and you can follow um, certain comment threads on, on show episodes. You can talk about comic books and movies, comic books and TV. You can also join the discussion for our monthly book uh, or book of the month I guess and you can also contribute to the voting on that book of the month there's a lot to do there's a lot of civil discussion people are writing in full sentences and putting out highly articulated points so as you might guess I'm not on there that frequently um (laughs) self dig um we have a website ircbpodcast.com it's great I highly recommend it if you go to the website, you can, of course, find the links to the episodes and our weekly pull list that we post every Tuesday, yes. books we're reading that we didn't talk about in the show. If you enjoy the show or if you have some constructive criticism for the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. That helps us out a lot. Let's us know what you guys think about the show, and it helps promote the show uh, so we show up on the Google searches more regularly. Mm-hmm. If you have some specific questions if you have questions about the x-men or gambit that you want mike to answer <laughs> email us yes ircb at destroy that's a great way to get in touch with us ask us questions feedback comments we love to interact with the fans so thanks for doing that <laughs> thank you paul um infinity shred <laughs> does all the music for our show they're the absolute best band in the entire universe we cannot be more thankful to have their music as part of our show um xander is an audio editing wizard he's also a real life wizard um i think that he <laughs> ascends to the high mountains once a year in order to recharge so that's his whole thing and finally to round off the show i just want to say thank you thank you thank you to everyone who listens and comments and talks with us and does all this stuff contributes to the good reads like makes this show worth doing every single week we appreciate every piece of information and every person out there who listens and downloads the show so thank you thank you so much and until next time we'll check you later thank you again for listening
I just need a button that turns your fucking brain off, Nick. It's <laughs> like, please, just quickly go through this thing. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, I just right. liked. I just liked. Hey, we have a website, but there's no reason to go there. So why even bother? <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Oh man! All right. Um, that's that's about it. Thanks for listening, folks. Um, I don't even. I'm just gonna put a random number in here. Hope Xander figures it out.